Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Matt Dillhunty from The Atheist Experience. Matt Dillahunty is a speaker, debater, and host of the popular call-in show The Atheist Experience out of Austin, Texas. He was featured in both the book and film versions of A Better Life. I asked him about a clip from the film where he said, While I was a Southern Baptist, I could move to anywhere in the United States and have a built-in, ready-to-go new social network waiting. Hey, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to this church here. I just moved down. I don't have a church. Oh, come to our church. Bam, you're instant friends. You share an instant connection. You have an instant community that's ready to support you no matter what. Well, not really no matter what, as it turns out, but at least initially. Anybody who's moved, I mean, I know some people don't move, but every time we've moved or, or been in that type of situation, it doesn't take long before somebody comes up, you know, one of your neighbors and they're doing the, where do you go to church thing? Or would you, welcome to the neighborhood. Would you like to come to our church? Um, and so as a fairly generic Southern Baptist, um, I grew up in Missouri. And if I had remained a Southern Baptist, when I got here to Austin, there are plenty of Baptist churches. Matter of fact, when I was a kid, when we moved around, we would, and we moved about every five years, um, we weren't running from anything. It just that's the way my dad's job was. <laughs> and we would go to several churches, and whichever one, pretty much whichever one my mom thought the pastor was clearly speaking for God, which in hindsight was whichever one my mom liked the most and agreed with her the most, that's where we ended up going to church. And so if you pack up your house and your family and you leave your circle of friends and your extended family or whatever you have in the area that you're at and you move to someplace completely new. For some people that's, you know, a wonderful adventure. For other people it's traumatizing. But if you are part of a religion that already has a base of operations in your new town, uh, which is going to be true for almost any, it's certainly any of the major denominations, you have a community that's ready, that's eager to welcome you because they need to keep their, their church growing they need to keep you know, money coming in. They need to keep the people coming in. Uh, this is how you get to the megachurches. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you could be a legitimately horrible human being uh, that ordinarily these people would not like. But if you walk in you know, to your new town and, hey, I'm a, you know, an Episcopalian, a Southern Baptist, a Pentecostal, uh, they're willing to welcome you into the church and they will do things for you. They will, you know, Hey, we know you just moved in. You probably don't have a lot of food. Let's, let's have a uh, potluck dinner. We'll bring some stuff over to you. It, it is, it is a community that is actually helpful. You know, somebody goes to the hospital, there are people there to chip in and participate that exists for almost every religious believer in the United States, certainly perhaps, uh, throughout most of the world. And that's not true for non-believers. Uh, we have, we, you know, and I'm not faulting the secular community at all. We are gradually doing more and more and getting better at it um, with things like, you know, Sunday Assembly and Oasis, which aren't a perfect fit for everybody. But even, you know, skeptics at the pub or the atheist community of Austin or whatever your local group is, we're doing a better job of making sure that we are there to support atheists in our community what we're not doing so much uh, or not doing a particularly good job of is making sure that new atheists who come to our community are aware of our existence and feel like it's a welcome place to go. This is a massive paradigm shift. I mean, religions have held this market forever. We've got to figure out better ways of making it known, which I think predominantly means we need out secularists and, you know, and out in the newspaper, anything. Yeah, it's one thing I've I've talked about a lot when I've gone to speak is the need for us to not only be out and open, but welcoming in the same way and provide those services in the same way that many religious groups do. Because if all we do is tell people you're wrong about ideology, if they're getting some of their social safety net from their local religious community 
and they rely on that, they're going to be far less likely to leave that religious institution than if the secular community was able to provide some of those services as well. There are people believe for a lot of different reasons, but more importantly, people attend their local church for a lot of different reasons. There are plenty of non-believers who find themselves in churches. Uh, at the recent debate, you know, that I, I did against Mike Lacona, I, I kind of started with a joke that it was at, it was at Austin Baptist Church, and I had always said I want to do more debates and more talks in front of, you know, just nothing but theists. I, and so I was like, the only atheists in the room are me, my wife. Whichever one of you are closet atheists that come to church to make your family happy, and wh whichever one of you are members of the clergy project and haven't told any. <laughs> so it gave me a chance to talk about a couple of different things, but it's not just about moving. I hear from people and engage with people who are like, no, th this is my church. This is, this is who looks after my kids when I'm working two jobs. Um, especially you start talking to single mothers uh, involved in churches this is their entire support network. It's also a, a massive gossip channel, but it's a place to go and eat and hang out and have fun. And you know that your kids, or you presume that your kids are safe. Uh, but one of the things they'd say is, you know, hey, if I stop believing and I stop going to church, where do I get this particular kind of support? And churches have an unfair advantage in the sense that they've been around forever. They're integrated into society. They are tax-free. They are the de facto institution that, at least in the United States, people point to for these types of resources, you know, charity efforts and helping the homeless and things like that. The secular community hasn't had these advantages. We've been, you know, a maligned, ostracized group of people for years, but we are starting to build these. I mean, you've got Foundation Beyond Belief, you've got Atheists Helping the Homeless, you've got uh, Humanists at Work. All of these people are doing things that not only show hey, we are here, but we are also here to help. And my, you know, my wife's making 500 hats for the homeless this year. That's her project. And we uh, have worked with uh, both Humanists at Work and, and uh, Atheists Helping Homeless here in Austin to, to both kind of raise our, the public perception of who we are, but mostly to say we're here and there are those of us who are willing to help. The one thing to remember, though, is that, you know, the social gatherings don't belong to churches. That's something churches stole from the, us being human beings. We're social creatures. We want to interact. But there's a lot of people, when they find their way out of religion, who want absolutely nothing to do with that. They, want to, they, they don't want anything to do with anything that looks like church. They don't want anything to do with anything that's asking for money. Uh, and a lot of them don't even feel that much of a need to interact with others. I got out of religion. I'm done. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to hang out with my small group of friends, and I don't need, you know, any of this other stuff. So we have to, to walk this line between trying to be what we can be to whoever needs it and recognizing that not everybody is going to want to participate in this. Uh, not everybody's going to feel this need. And I think my biggest complaint uh, within the secular community is when you look at things like Oasis and Sunday Assembly, they get labeled atheist church, uh, which is not, I mean, it's wrong on so many levels because church isn't not only Christian, it's primarily Protestant. So <laughs> we're using, we're using Protestant language to describe it because, you know, Catholics go to mass and Jews go to synagogue and all this, but there are individuals, uh, including some high up individuals at organizations like Center for Inquiry who, who basically have said, if you go to Sunday Assembly or Oasis, you are not sufficiently secular. You are still stuck in the trappings of the theistic mindset. We have to stop doing that and we have to stop allowing those people who represent us publicly doing that. It's one thing to say this sort of uh, community, this Oasis, whatever, isn't for me. It's another thing to say the people who are doing this really don't belong in our community because they're really just, you know, like kind of non-believing Christians who still would want to go and hold hands and sing and all that gross stuff that I don't want anything to do with. That that makes us look even more like the, you know, angry, uh, let me reject everything about religion because religion is garbage without recognizing that the way religions have thrived is by catering to good aspects 
of human interaction and trying to lay claim to it as their own. That also goes for something like Christmas, too. Hasn't there been a a push yeah. by some people that, oh, if we atheists celebrate Christmas, that we're not real atheists? Yeah, not so actually both of these primarily come from the same person. Um, Tom Flynn at Center for Inquiry, I've actually called for him to resign, and I don't want him to re- resign over his Christmas remarks. Uh, I, I want him to resign over his remarks about people attending Sunday Assembly or Oasis. To say you are not sufficiently secular um, is to do harm to the secular community because it can be broader than this narrow, I'm done with religion and now I'm just going to sit around and, you know, uh, attack, attack, attack all the time and even attack people who agree with me just because they want to get together and I don't. The Christmas thing is more of a, of a personal thing. Beth and I did a video for uh, my Atheist Debates Project on uh, celebrate whatever you want for whatever reason you want. You know, we already know that if you made it, if you walked, I, I've been wanting to do this experiment, go to a church in June and just stand outside with a camera. And as people walk out, hey, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And you start with something innocuous and then say, what are the first three things you think of when you hear peanut butter? What are the first three things you think of when you hear atheist? What are the first three things you think of when you hear Christmas? I would be surprised if Jesus would make the top three, even with people walking out of a church on Sunday. Now, you don't want to do it like Easter or Christmas Sunday because, you know, they'll have been had conversations about this, but he picked a random Sunday in June. Mm-hmm. When you ask people, what do you think about when you think about Christmas? Well, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously it's snow uh, and frosty and Santa and reindeer and trees and lights and food and family. And, you know, those are going to appear in all kinds of different order. And of course, you're going to get answers of Jesus. But what we primarily celebrate in the modern Western world Christmas is an invention of the Victorian era where we had Christ mass and then there was this syncretization, uh, stealing from other religions, uh, co-opting all kinds of stuff, pagan rituals. And, but the marketed, Hey, we're going to spend a lot of money. (laughs) We are going to get together with family. We are going to take time off work. Those things which are the most important aspects of, the, of what we celebrate for Christmas have nothing to do with Christianity at all. It, it, and so my thing is, you know, celebrate whatever you want for whatever reason you want. And you, you, I don't, don't even have a problem with Tom saying, oh, Christmas is bad. We were actually going to do a debate on Christmas at one point, and I would never call for you know, his resignation over that. But when you go a step further to say, if you celebrate Christmas, you are giving aid and comfort to the enemy – which is something he's reportedly said, I think you've crossed a line. And when you say that if you go do anything, well, actually he said if you celebrate anything in December, solstice or whatever, you are giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And if you do anything like Sunday Assembly or Oasis, you are insufficiently secular. Uh, to have a no true Scotsman fallacy so obvious there, you know, you're not a true secularist. Well, who the hell put you in charge? I didn't think we had anybody in charge. I thought it was just, hey, I don't believe in God, and I want to find a bunch of other people who who don't believe in this uh, because I don't want to give up the core aspects of what it means to be a social human being just because I don't go to church. I wonder where that animosity comes from. I don't know. Um, I don't know if we'll ever actually get around to having that the, the great atheist Christmas debate or not. One of the things is that There are members of what I would probably call the old guard who have a different life experience than I do. And my life experience is different from your generation and the ones that are coming up behind you. The types of struggles that they dealt with, you know, you take a look at anything with the civil rights movement, you know, um, African-Americans 100 years ago and 50 years ago and 30 years ago, they have different life experiences. I, I see a lot of problems in society at large, not just in the secular community, of people failing to recognize nuance and failing to listen charitably. Now, we shouldn't listen so charitably that we just let people get away with being awful. Mm. But if you if you grew up, I have a very good friend who's a, a, an older gentleman who absolutely despises Christmas. And his actually stems from uh, it being a rather traumatic time. You know, his mom died on Christmas and it poisoned, you know, the celebration of the holiday type thing. 
There could be any number of things like that. But but the important thing here is that you can despise Christmas and Sunday assembly and Oasis and whatever, you know, you, you can despise church-state separation. I mean, you, nothing says if you're an atheist, you have to support church-state separation. You can talk to people like S.E. Cup and others who don't. You can despise all those things. It's when you start saying that other people should also, that you've then adopted not only a burden of proof, but you've adopted a mindset that puts you in charge of what it means to be properly secular. And I'm happy for people to live their life uh, in a way where they are engaging in consensual activities. And as long as they're not hurt, what, what difference does it make to me? It reminds me very much of the marriage is one man, one woman thing. Well, what difference does it make to you if two people of the same gender want to get married? What difference does it make to you if somebody who happens to also be secular celebrates an entirely secular Christmas or goes to Sunday assembly races? This is kind of a, a lashing out of a frustration where they had to actually fight to get the recognition and the respect that they felt they deserved. And it seems, I think, to some of them that just as soon as we are getting that, when the nuns are, the NONEs, are the most rapidly you know, growing religious identity. Now the tent is much bigger and people are rolling their issues into secularism. Oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about, you know, women's issues or Black Lives Matter. Or, and I think that there's the old guard that's like, hang on, we're not where we need to be on the secularism issues yet. And now you're bringing all this stuff in here and you're poisoning this and you've ruined my master plan, you know, uh, of where I was walking through to proper atheist normalcy. And I understand, you know, that kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction to that. I just don't agree with it. I think that uh, one of the ways to grow this and, and actually properly achieve secular normalcy is to say, we are going to acknowledge and encourage all of those aspects of humanity that, that make us human. The, the things, you know, we're done with the religious slut-shaming and the religious domination uh, of, you know, main idea where they get to dictate what is and isn't right. We're going to take this and say, you know what? Hey, for years you couldn't drink and you guys were all in favor of prohibition. It's possible for human beings to drink socially and responsibly and we're not necessarily hurting anything. It may in fact be good for you. Uh, you know, Hey, have a glass of wine and if that's the end of it, whatever. It's about saying we're still human we're going to take back the things that religions co-opted from the human experience because they used them and poisoned them with ideology. And it's, I've been saying for a dozen years now, keep the good and get rid of the bad wherever you find it, including in a religious setting. If it turns out that, you know, turn the other cheek in the sense of what it actually means, which is to to perhaps be a bit more forgiving, not to just be a pushover or to set yourself up to be a victim. But if you take that to mean, let's just be a bit more forgiving is a really good idea. I don't care if it's attributed to Jesus. It's either a good idea or it's not independent of who said it. One of the things that I've been so happy to see over the past couple of years that I've been working on the book and working on the film and then touring, uh, talking and showing the film is to see these communities, these secular communities all over the world growing and becoming more prominent in their own towns and cities. I went to uh, Kansas City to speak at Kansas City Oasis, and they had 200 people who show up yeah. every Sunday to meet and laugh and eat and talk and discuss important issues about life and joy and meaning and all of these things, all the things that are really important to me. And so it's so wonderful to see these communities popping up and spreading and growing and forming community uh, where you don't need to be part of a religious ideology to be a part of it. Yeah, I, 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 I'm originally from Kansas City, and uh, I did speak at Oasis. I actually did an awful, awful magic show at Oasis. <laughs> uh, the one big thing that I was doing as a bit of an experiment had uh, one of the props had a technical issue. So I, you know, paused and went and fixed it. And then it had a technical issue again. I was like, ah, this is so frustrating. Uh, the rest of it went okay. But it was nice because uh, I remember, I've been doing magic since I was three. And, but seriously, from when I was like 10 or so, I remember church magic shows 
at Children's Church. And I had already been doing magic for years when they when I started seeing this, and I hated it. I despised it. It was it was magic done awfully by people who knew nothing about magic. You know, here's here's this little box, and I've got a silk that's got red splotches all over it, and this this represents your sin or black splotches all over it. it represents your sinful nature, and I put it in the box and pull it out through a different hole in the box, and now it's washed clean when the you know there's no more splotches. Jesus did it. It wasn't a good trick. Uh, it wasn't performed well. And it really, really turned me off. And so I decided, you know, I'm not going to be doing any object lesson garbage tricks uh, <laughs> for the secular community. You mean no evolution through magic show? I There, there are some. <laughs> so I have an, a couple ideas for tricks that, are, that I'm going to be doing sarcastically as a way of kind of mocking uh, <laughs> the magic that we had at the puppet shows at Children's Church. Um, and w- I don't remember who the guy was, but there was somebody who opened a jar of peanut butter oh, I remember that to show that you know uh, evolution doesn't happen because his peanut butter still pe- I don't even remember exactly I'm gonna go look the video back up because uh, <laughs> there is a magic trick where you know like peanut butter and jelly type swap faces places and stuff but I I thought of an idea where I could take the lid off and show the peanut butter take some peanut butter out and do a mockery of his video <laughs> put the put the lid back on. And then take the lid back off, and now the peanut butter's got, like, fungus growing on it or whatever, you know. Hey, look, something's evolving in my peanut butter. Just put one of those snakes in there and have the guy open it up. and Really? It's a can of peanuts, I promise. Because <laughs> all, all cans of peanuts in 2017 look exactly like a little tin can that came out in the 40s. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about your path from being raised in a religious environment to being an atheist. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and actually, a really cool thing happened at the last debate that I did. The parents of one of my best friends from high school flew down from St. Louis to see me at this debate at a Baptist church as part of the unapologetic conference. But a third gentleman came with them who knew me from church, and during the Q&A, he got up and he basically said, you know, you may not remember me, but I knew you as a teenager, and you were amazing, and you were a strong part of the church, and we all thought you were going to be a star. What happened? And I I loved it, because first of all, there are always people who are going to question, you know, well, were you really saved? That question actually came up, or do you think you were really saved? And well, obviously not, because I don't think you can be. I don't think there's anything to be saved from or to. But I, I gave a really long answer, and they let me go on, thankfully. Um, and it's it'll be posted in the debate video I post this week, and, and it, it's a good little discussion. But the short version is my family was pri- predominantly Southern Baptist. My mom's side of the family was Catholic, although most of them converted. I walked down the aisle at the age of five and accepted Jesus into my heart. I was active in the youth group. Um, I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, you know, however many, whenever there was something going on, not always, I don't want to make it sound like I was this pristine, perfect Bible. I was a normal kid. I, I did a lot of bad stuff, you know, ran around with my friends and, you know, did stuff I wasn't supposed to. Uh, but I was a sincere believer and active in the church. Uh, I then went in the Navy for about eight years. And I think that the exposure to other people um, outside of the bubble I had been raised in was very helpful. But I was a believer for the entire time that I was in the military. I was in for a little over eight years. And I changed my views on some things. I mean, granted, I was a full-on Rush Limbaugh ditto head for a while. But I also changed my views on the don't ask, don't tell policy because we had to kick someone out of the Navy uh, who had been outed by someone else. And he was one of the, the best people and best workers in my division. And the guy who had outed him was just awful, just a useless, you know, as far as our, our jobs were concerned. And that changed my view on that. And, and interacting with a number of people who had different Christian beliefs than I did, but also different religious beliefs in general. I didn't really engage with a lot of Muslims, but when I got out of the Navy, I went and worked in the tech industry for a number of years. And then around 2000 and one, um, I lost my job. I lost everything. You know, I'd worked my butt off. I'd been focused on my career and I thought God was punishing me. I had thought that when I was a teenager, God wanted me to be a preacher. And I said no and took off and, you know, did the military and then, and then my electronics career. 
And when you think God's punishing you and you know you haven't been living right and you've been, you know, running around doing all the things that you knew you shouldn't have done, um, in my case, it means you get serious. And so I uh, immediately, I mean, when Dell let me go, they gave me enough money where I didn't have to work for a year and a half. And I said, okay, God, if you want me to be a preacher, I'll do that. And I started, it was more than a year and a half, but it was about that long of serious prayer and study. Uh, I had a an uncle who was a medical missionary. I went to him to ask questions. I had some people, you know, former members of, of churches that I'd been involved with that I talked to, pastor friends of mine. My roommate at the time was an atheist, and we had agreed not to talk about it because we we wanted to keep our friendship. Why would we ruin a good friendship with, you know, hey, I believe you don't, you know, let's just leave it at that. But when you get serious, my thought was, I'm going to get to heaven, and God's going to say, why is this guy who you love like a brother burning in hell? Because you made some agreement not to do what, what I wanted you to do. You you are under obligation, First Peter 3.15, to be prepared at all times to give the answer for the faith that's within you with gentleness and respect. And so I set out to try and figure out how to convince an atheist. Um, and without ever having a single conversation with him, it backfired spectacularly. And I, I quickly found that I didn't have good reasons for my belief. And I then decided I would explore a bunch of other religions and it became obvious really quickly I wasn't going to have time to do that. So I tried to go directly to philosophy and, and epistemology and find out what kind of God might exist. Because once I figure out what kind of God might exist, that'll direct my search more clearly towards the correct religion. Because it was still in my mind, surely one of these has to be correct. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't take too long to figure out, no, there's no good reason to think that one of them has to be correct. Uh, it could be the case that they are all wrong, that these are mistakes in thinking. And I remember driving home from work with my roommate one day, and I said, uh, I think I'm kind of agnostic now. And he just kind of was like, okay, whatever, and kept going. Uh, and it wasn't long after that that I started, I, I recognized myself as an atheist and started writing things for online websites. That led to participation with the Atheist Experience TV show, which had been on for years. You know, like, I've, I've hosted for 12, and it's been on for 20. Uh, so it had already been on for seven or eight years by the time I got involved and things just kind of took off from there. I was doing the live TV show, taking calls and that turned into lectures and debates. Uh, and that's how I got here from there. Was it an unsettling experience to lose your faith? Because the way you describe it, it seems kind of nonchalant. You're just driving in the car and say to your roommate, oh, I'm kind of agnostic now. But was it a difficult experience for you? So I hear from people all the time who have really difficult experiences where they are distraught, where, you know, and actually Marlene Winnell has coined the term religious trauma syndrome because there are some people who, you know, hey, I, not only have I lost my beliefs, but I've lost my social network and my family and I've been ostracized and just it's 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 you could be in a position where you are essentially grieving the loss of all your family members at the same time. It's, it's in some cases it's almost like they died in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. uh, other people, you know, I've heard from people who've been atheists for fifty years who still have nightmares about you know hell, uh, a fear of hell that they were indoctrinated into as children. I had none of that. Um, I, I don't know exactly why. I think. I think I'm a bit more kind of pragmatic. If if I can't fix a problem, I do I don't do any worrying over it. I try to focus on the things that I can fix. Um, and so it reminded me, you know, if you thought you were going to inherit a billion dollars on your 30th birthday and on your 29th birthday you found out it was all not true, um, you're going to be distraught for a little while, but you've got to bounce back and start living your life. And if you had spent money all those years with the anticipation of getting this billion, your life is destroyed. You're going to be massively in debt. And that is something that I view as similar to this promise of heaven. People will say, well, don't you think that you've lost something? Yeah, but what I lost wasn't real. And I, well, aren't you mad at, you know, your parents and the preachers? No, I'm not, because they honestly tried to teach me what they thought was right. They are as much a victim of this poor thinking as I was. Um, well, I, I fault them a bit more now because they are not willing to have the conversations that would help them find their way out. Mm -hmm. um, so they've kind of shut down. 
Um, and that's a disappointing, but I also recognize that that's a symptom of, of, of this, you know, deep religious indoctrination, how it preys upon people's fears. And so I, for me, it was very liberating for me. It was, Oh, wow. Uh, I used to be wrong and now I'm not wrong anymore. I, I used to, you know, be worried about, have to worry about this, 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 and this, and I don't have to worry about these things anymore. I can go and explore the world and learn as much about it as I can. Hey, I don't have to hate somebody, even though I know that every, as soon as I say the word hate somebody, oh, religions don't make you hate people. Okay, here's the truth. As a Southern Baptist, I heard love the sin or hate the sin more than people could possibly imagine. So it's very much, you know, with regard to, for example, homosexuality. We're supposed to love those people, lead them to Christ. We despise the sin that they actually engage in. That is a big fat lie. Um, it is a way of making yourself more comfortable with the idea that you are actively supporting hateful, oppressive views with regard to people. I went to this unapologetics conference and this guy kind of tiptoed around this issue because he was asked, well, what about our church's hardline stance on homosexuality? And he went into the, you know, hey, homosexual attraction isn't the sin. Being attracted to somebody of the same sex isn't the sin. It's actually engaging in the sex. So it's all this conversion therapy, deny who you really are, all because your religion says that something, which we know to be, you know, natural, not to engage in a naturalistic fallacy, uh, your church says it's wrong. I don't know how. Uh, apart from this lie of love the ha- the sinner, hate the sin, do, do you view it that way with regard to uh, genocidal maniacs? Do you love those people and hate the sin? It's, it's a way of making people more comfortable with the fact that they are actively supporting awful, oppressive ideas and doing real harm to people by saying, oh, I know you think that you're attracted to somebody of the same gender, but that's just an obstacle that God put in your path and you can overcome it and you can be what God wants you to be. And so you force people to uh, actively pursue living a lie and diminish the entirety of their life experience. And while you may not hate them in the sense of uh, actively, openly despising people, what you're engaged in uh, certainly isn't love. It is you love your doctrine first. And if your doctrine put you in a position where you oppress other people, you just tell yourself that you love them and hate what they're doing. And you mentioned your parents as well and how they are still religious. Has that been difficult interacting with them since you've become an atheist? It was at first. Um, my parents thought I was working for Satan. They, they still think I'm working for Satan. I'm, I'm actively leading people to hell. Do you get a paycheck from Satan? I don't. Um, well, you know, they would say I do. <laughs> you put Satan on your LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. But they, you know, they sent me a birthday card 12 years ago, something like that, that said, we are praying for God to stop you no matter what the cost, which is basically knowing what they're talking about is kind of like a death threat. If God has to kill you to get you to stop leading people to hell, we would much rather that happen. Wow. That's really disturbing. It is. Um, Things will never be normal again with my parents, but there is a new normal. I don't, I want, so even the people who've had awful times of it, like, you know, my wife was ostracized from the bulk of her family for more than four years. And then they just decided, well, you know, we're not going to apologize, but we're just going to forget that those four years happened because we want to, you know, have you in our life. Mm-hmm. In my case, it was, you know, my parents were just here this past weekend. They drove all the way down from Missouri to get me, you know, they rented a, a van. They gave us their old dining room table and kitchen table. Um, dad and I worked and we cleaned out the garage and we went out to eat. We had a lot of fun and, you know, mom and Beth sat in and watched TV. There's a new normal. And there was even a teeny, teeny little bit of talk about religion, which we had pretty much agreed not to talk about in order to like keep the peace. But about seven years ago, my mom gave me Lee Strobel's uh, The Case for Christ, along with some other things, and I, for Christmas. And I said, uh, I said, thanks, Mom, but I already have this book. As a matter of fact, I've, I've written rebuttals to portions of this book. Um, if you want to get me books from apologists, I'd love to have them. I, I want to have them and read through them. 
just ask me before you get them so you don't get me duplicates. You know, let mm-hmm. me let me apologize. You know, because what had happened is they had gone to hear Lee Strobel talk and then they spoke to him to say, hey, basically, our son's an atheist now. What do we do? And he sold them all his crappy books. <laughs> and I was at this conference a couple weeks ago and Lee Strobel was there. So I had him autograph the book and told him the story. And so I showed the book to my mom saying, Hey, look, you know, this book, you got me, I got Lee to autograph it. And I, that was, there wasn't much conversation after that, but there's a new normal. Um, I I'm sad about it because I know that they're very, it's, it would be almost a miracle if for them to change their minds. And I know that they are constantly in this place of sadness that they failed me as spiritual leaders, that it's somewhat their responsibility. I'm going to hell. I'm leading other people to hell. And yet they interact with me and love me and know that I'm a good person. And it's very difficult for them to reconcile. This is a pawn of Satan with buddy's a good person who is our son, who we love. That's difficult for them. They are constantly, uh, you know, dealing with that and will until the day they die. And it makes me sad that they're, I, I mentioned this at the, at the debate. I know there are people who are sad thinking that I've lost my salvation or never had it, or I'm destined for hell. And this makes them sad. And I pointed out, it makes me sad, um, that they have succumbed to a religious idea that, would make them miserable that someone has honestly engaged their intellect, demonstrated that there's no good reason to believe this. And you think that there's a God who's going to punish that person and that that is moral and just. And this then makes you sad. I I couldn't be happier. My, my life is fine. Um, and if I find myself, you know, in an afterlife where there's some God who's tormenting me, I'm, I am more moral than that God is because I know, uh, this wasn't an act of rebellion. I didn't get mad at God. Nothing bad happened to me. There's just insufficient evidence. I am unconvinced that a God exists. And I'm, if I'm going to be punished for that, that is definitionally immoral. And you've mentioned something in the past. I don't remember the specific quote. So refresh my memory on this speaking to your mother about heaven and how could there be heaven without you in it? I didn't actually speak to her about it. It's an, it's an example that I used to, it's an argument I used to essentially prove that under this particular doctrine, there is no, no one goes to heaven. Even if there is heaven, no one goes there because my mom, for example, believes that she's going to heaven. She believes that I'm going to hell and she believes there's no sadness in heaven. Now, there's no possibility that my mom could ever not be sad that her son is in hell, which means that if my mom gets to heaven, she can't stay there because she would be sad. So the only, only ways around this are to say, oh, she's given, you know, a new body and a new mind and a new perspective. Well, then she's not my mom. It's you, you, if you, we are the sum of our memories and experiences and preferences and personalities. And if you took my mom and removed everything that makes her love and care about me, she's no longer my mom. She's a facsimile of my mom. So there's no way that my mom is going to be in heaven if she's not allowed to be sad that I'm in hell. Oh, we're going to wipe her memory. Cool. I'm glad you have come up with that as a potential solution. But when you wipe somebody's memory, they are no longer the same person. Uh, And this is especially true. You know, we have arguments about, you know, Star Trek transporters and identity and stuff like that, where we're primarily talking about, I am Matt. I am this particular bag of meat, Uh, this this brain in a body and neurons and all of you, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But... If you wipe my memory, am I still Matt? You know, does that make any sense? We know from studying people with uh, severe brain damage that every aspect of what we would identify as a soul is a product of the brain. Your memories, your personalities, your preference, what you, you know, all the, and they can all be changed, including your ability to make new memories and your ability to retain old memories. They can all be changed and reset. Now, there is a context in which 
when somebody like, let's say they take a lightning bolt to the head and it scrambles their brain and, and they forget everything about who they are, dramatic personality shift, no memory, have to relearn, don't recognize their family. Of course, there's a context in which they are the same person in the sense that there's a continuity of that particular arrangement of atoms. But to say that they are the same person, I don't, I don't know how you can even attempt to make that statement. And so if your model of heaven means that there's no sadness in heaven, no suffering in heaven, then my mom's not going. Uh, and at best you would have like this, you know, facsimile robotic worship drone that may have a vague appearance of my mom and may have some aspects of who my mom used to be, but it's not her. People, I think, you know, think about heaven or think about the afterlife and they don't go much further than thinking about, oh, it'll just be really great. They kind of ignore the details. Yeah. It's an, you could do the same thing in reverse. Um, it, it doesn't, I, I'm not aware of any, any idea that there can be no happiness in hell, but I think that you could make a strong case for it, that if it's a place of, you know, uh, eternal torment and torture that, you know, but it doesn't specifically say that happiness is prohibited there. Uh, but if that's your conclusion, that it's impossible for someone to be happy, um, then I'd say that nobody's in hell either. Um, because I, w I will be there and I may be tormented in misery, at, but I will be happy that I did not cave out of fear and gullibility. I will, you know, we know this from, for example, POWs. Um, I was listening to John McCain talk recently, um, and even when they did a failed rescue attempt, that gave them moments of hope. Hey, they are still looking for us. Hey, they are still going to you know, try to rescue us. Um, th there are a few things on earth that I can imagine as being as close to hell as being a Vietnam POW. Um, and when you're cut off from everybody you know and love and you're cut off from information – just getting that little piece of information that they're still trying has value and can bring some measure of happiness. And while I may not have, you know, if I'm in hell, I may not have any inkling uh, that something like that's going on. I get to carry my thoughts with me. And if it turns out you have to scrub those thoughts from my brain in order to torture me perfectly, then I'm, I'm no longer in hell either. You've just created, you know, you've siphoned all of the decentness and goodness out somehow and left whatever crappy husk there is that you're tormenting for your own sadistic pleasure. But I'm not there. You know, one thing that people often ask me at talks is, aren't you scared that there's no God? Aren't you um, concerned that, you know, that no one is ultimately in charge, right? And I always tell people that, that it is scary in a certain way, because you know, it's like realizing that nobody's flying the plane and, oh my God, there's nobody flying the plane. But at the same time, I always say that the positive is that it's then up to us, that it gives us a certain amount of agency and responsibility that, yeah, it is scary to have that in certain respects, but it's also empowering because if we want change in the world, we have to do it. There's nobody yeah. else who's going to do it for us. It's up to us to make that change. Yeah, I think one of the reasons, you know, this idea that it's scary to think that there might not be anybody flying the plane, the reason that's scary is because we know there's supposed to be somebody flying the plane. And what religions have done have, have, have given this false impression that there is somebody um, which provides comfort to people. There's somebody guiding all of the universe. If you get rid of that presupposition that there should be someone in charge of all this, I think it becomes eminently less scary. And what I'm more scared of are the people who uh, think there's someone flying the plane when there isn't, mm -hmm. you know, Oh, I, it would be really scary for me to think that nobody's flying the plane. So I'm just going to believe that someone is flying the plane. Um, when, if the truth is there isn't anybody, then you need that information to take action and, and protect yourself. You've been doing this work at the Atheist Experience for 12 years now. Do you ever get tired of getting the same questions over and over again? 
Yeah, I do. Um, when, early on when I started working with the show and doing a lot of stuff with the Atheist Community of Austin, there were other people involved who were like, you know, don't don't take on too much. Don't you, you're going to burn yourself out. Um, I'm really good at taking me time. Um, when I get to a spot where I don't want to deal with this, you know, whatever anymore, um, I go off and I do something else. I'm, I'm a regular human being. I don't engage in, in debates and conversations about religion 24 seven. I might be thinking about it, uh, most of my waking time, but that's because I actually enjoy it. Uh, there was a period of time where we declared kind of a moratorium on Pascal's wager. If somebody was calling in to present that because it had just been addressed to pieces. For me, the way I think about the TV show, by the way, it's a live call-in TV show. We try to take predominantly theistic callers, people presenting what they believe and why, and then we address why we don't uh, agree with them, or in some cases why we do. I view the show in a way as a game. I don't want to trivialize it and go, oh, I'm just playing games. It's an it's a game for me. If I've heard the cosmolo one of one of the cosmological arguments a thousand times, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do is think about it in a new way. I don't want to get to where I have a I mean I have some stock answers, you know, I want to believe as many true things and as few false things, or here's the problem with this. But I want to try and address it in different ways. And the nice thing is, if you're doing a live show and you're interacting with a caller, you can ask different questions. So it becomes an experiment. Someone's calling in to tell me why they believe that a God exists. And per, you know, we'll pick five, five people. Per, first person comes in and they present the Kalam cosmological argument as presented by William Lane Craig. Somebody else calls in and they present a similar thing, but in a more conversational sense. Uh, somebody else comes, calls in and they wouldn't have the first idea what the argument is, but they're expressing kind of a similar idea. And then you have two other people who are a copy of one of those others. If I ask them different questions to lead them down different paths, we not only get to learn something about how that person thinks, we get to see different aspects of the argument. And what I've come to discover is that People don't all believe for the same reason. They didn't get into religion the same way. Some people were raised in it. Some people fell into it, uh, you know, as teenagers or even as adults. They believe for different reasons. They have different understandings, and they are going to find their way out of it based on different arguments. In some cases, it's going to be, you know, somebody needs to be very uh, assertive and harsh in order to kind of like snap them into actually thinking a little deeper than the surface. And in some cases, somebody's going to need to kind of gently guide them towards something. People find their way out for different reasons. And so I'm trying to find as many of those reasons I can. You know, somebody, somebody will email the show and say, oh, you know, this caller this on the past show said X and you replied with this. But I really think, you know, this other response is better. And inevitably, I've used that other response at some other time in the past 12 years. It's just I don't want the show to become Matt's going to regurgitate his you know, stock answer, uh, to this. And I have a number of friends who are apologists, including, you know, one of them who showed up at my debate recently with Lacona. Um, we, this was interesting. You, you know who William Lane Craig is, right? Yeah. Those of us who are actively engaged in some sort of counter apologetics are of course familiar with, Hey, here's William Lane Craig. Here's Mike Lacona. Here's Lee Strobel, who doesn't debate, but is, you know, I count him amongst the apologists. Here's Ray Comfort. Here's blah, blah, blah. I was at Austin Baptist Church, hundreds of people sitting out in the audience. Lee Strobel's talking, and he asked how many of them are familiar with William Lane Craig. Maybe 20 hands went up. In one of the breakout sessions, specifically teaching apologetics. Now, this is at an apologetics conference. This isn't just the average day at Austin Baptist Church. This is at a conference specifically devoted to apologetics. In one of the breakout sessions, um, Braxton, I've forgotten his last name, sorry, Braxton, was asked the same question of about 100 or so people. And there were maybe seven, eight, nine hands went up. Now, this is the foremost debater for Christian apologetics. Easily the most in-demand and most most famous. He's, you know, you, you could argue maybe... Rabbi Zacharias or others might be on a par, but generally considered to be, you know, the man. And nobody 
essentially knows who he is. Mm -hmm. Both both the apologists that I debate and those people who do what I do, we are living in a particular little bubble that doesn't necessarily connect to the people in the pews. They, hey, God is real, and it's obvious, and Jesus loves me, and that's all I know. And that's why I come here to get spoon-fed stuff from the preacher every Sunday with whatever sermon that he happens to be going after. They don't know that much about what they claim to believe. They don't know that much about the history of it. They are not versed in uh, philosophy or epistemology. They are not versed in uh, skepticism and critical thinking. That is not who they are. And so when I realized that on day one of the conference, when I got to the debate, I changed a lot of things that I had intended to say. And I used the debate as a simple intro to burden of proof, no hypothesis and skepticism to show. And I also, also I made a lot of points saying, I don't think you're stupid. I don't think my IQ went up when I stopped believing. I just gained better access to better information. Um, I don't look at you as the enemy. I, I may actively despise you, the religious doctrine, but I don't look at religious individuals as the enemy. There were so many, I, I know it was a little unsettling for some of them to see somebody who was obviously thoughtful and had come from the same background that they had. And when he learned the things that they don't know, he gave it up. That is the the debate was necessary in order for us to get that out, even though the debate topic didn't really get addressed a lot by either of us. I mean, the topic was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And he presented the bulk of his argument was completely irrelevant. But this idea that, oh, these people are in church and therefore they have good reasons and they, they don't even understand what good reasons are. And I don't mean that to belittle them. I think that's true of almost everybody. We pretty much just live our lives. You don't have time to become an expert on anything, so you trust the experts. And if these people who are way smarter and way more you know, conversant with the subject than you are uh, can, are convinced that there's really good reasons. My mom, when I showed her Lee Strobel's book, she goes, oh, well, yeah, he was an atheist. And I was like, well, for a very short period of time, he was opposed to religion. Um, I'm not, you know, certainly he did not believe, which makes him technically an atheist. I'm not convinced that Lee Strobel was ever an atheist for good reasons Mm -hmm. that he, you know, when he went out and investigated, he was immediately convinced through softball questions to nothing. But, you know, when you read the, uh, the case for a creator, the case for Christ, he plays at being a skeptic and goes out and asks softball, simple questions with no follow-up. There's never, there's never uh, yes, but what about this type of thing? Um, and he's only interviewing believers, or almost only interviewing believers. You're in a very unique position in that you have this religious background yourself, then became an atheist, but also years of speaking and debating with theists and religious individuals. So what do you think is one of the most important things that secular people who maybe don't have that background could understand about the other side? I think probably the biggest thing is they're not all the same. And if you're going to engage in a conversation with them, don't make assumptions. There's nothing more frustrating for me than watching somebody go at a believer full throttle and then, you know, use a piece of Catholic doctrine when you're talking to a Protestant. Oh, well, you believe that the cracker literally turns into the body of Jesus. No, they don't. That's Catholic doctrine. And actually most Catholics don't actually believe that this is, this is a lot of ceremonial stuff. This is about community. This is about, uh, their fears. Um, they, they don't under, you know, and I, I don't want to make, make it sound like I'm saying they're stupid. Um, they are ignorant, as was I, as was many others, about how to go about really determining whether something's real. The the prime example that came up in this debate over and over again was uh, whether or not there's good reason to think that reality has a supernatural realm. And his argument was that it does. And he told ghost stories and answered prayer stories. And I was like, 
you're using the term supernatural as if it means things that we don't have an explanation for. And if we don't have an explanation for, for it, then the answer is, I don't know. The, when you say, what is the explanation for this? You don't get to say it is supernatural because you, you haven't added an explanation. And generally speaking, the theists that you're going to run into, and this applies to Christians, Muslims, you know, et cetera, are decent people who have fallen into a particular belief and have built their, their life or portion of their life and their social structure around it. Um, they may in fact be doing awful things on behalf of their religion, but they're not aware of that. And for each of them, there is some foundational belief, and it's going to be different for different people, that needs to be chipped away at. And you're not going to, it's very unlikely that you're going to convince anybody over the course of a single conversation. And you may not be able to convince anybody at all. I can talk to somebody and never change their mind. And then you could come up and talk to that same person and say the same things. But because there's a shift in the personality component, now they're more likely to listen. And I, I had an example, or a thought that I was putting together for a talk that there's that old saying that three on a match is bad luck. And it comes from wartime. The first person lights their cigarette and the enemy sees a flash of light. And then they hand the cigarette, the lighter to the next person. And during that time, the sniper has a chance to zoom into that area. And then when the cigarette gets to the third person, that's the one who gets shot. I think there's something similar with regard to believers engaging with non-believers. The first time, if you've been raised in Christianity, for example, the first time you run across an atheist, that's weird. Oh, here's somebody who doesn't believe. This is a, this is a weird, it's a curiosity. It's uh, a little terrifying. Mm. The second time you run into one of them, it triggers something in your mind. Hey, I've heard this before. You know, oh, there, there's more to this than I actually thought. It's not just, you know, a rebellious teenager or this, you know, kook at the end of my street who, you know, hates the government and blah, blah, blah. And then the third time that it's presented to him, now there's a pattern. That's what it takes to spot a pattern. And as soon as they realize that there's a pattern of non-believers, with non-believers increasing, th th many of them aren't even aware it's an option to not believe. Mm -hmm. So if you go at it as if everybody you're talking to is Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the God hates fags people, if that's your attitude going into it, I don't know how effective you're likely to be. But if you go into it with, this is somebody that I care about, perhaps a relative, but I don't have to play super softball like I might be inclined to do with a relative, like my folks and I don't talk about religion anymore. So I try to view the people I'm interacting with as if they're like a cousin, uh, somebody that I care about in the sense that, you know, we're related and we're probably going to have some interactions, but that I'm not so deeply invested into that I have to couch the truth or, or use kid gloves all the time. So it's this, it's this middle road of, of assertive compassion, I guess. You and I met years ago, and when you started working on this project for the, for the book that turned into the movie, um, I was really honored and happy to be included because I, I think it's an important thing. And I, I love the book and I love the movie, and not just because I'm featured you know, somewhat prominently in, in portions of the movie. It's because this subject comes up, but it always, doesn't always come up directly. There are people who fear that if they give up their belief, um, life will have no meaning. And it gets back to the thing that we talked about earlier about there's a fear that they might find out nobody's steering the ship or flying the plane. And it, it, it strikes me that let's say we conclusively demonstrated today that there is in fact no God anywhere, never has been. There's nothing but the natural world. What does that fundamentally change about joy and meaning? What does it fundamentally change about justice? It changes our perception of some of us, of what we thought the case was. But we've talked about this before in the sense of, you know, does a flower become more beautiful because a God made it? Or is it more beautiful because a God didn't? Isn't the flower, its beauty is a subjective 
assessment from us. Isn't it just exactly as beautiful whether a God made it or not? Uh, and and we've, I've talked before about how the potential of a God actually diminishes it, because how much more beautiful could it have been? I mean, could God have made a flower that was so beautiful that you were overcome with emotion and, and wept uh, the instant you saw this, this single flower? The same thing applies to this idea of, of joy and meaning. Um, we don't need a an absolute authority dictating how much my TV costs. You know, we're, we don't live in a barter system anymore in the explicit sense of I'm going to give you, you know, three chickens for that, you know, tractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we argue back and forth. But we do still live in a system like that where it, it is individuals and broader community in the economic sense that determines how much value something has. So economists will look and say, okay, what will the market bear? Hey, we made this TV and it might only cost us 20 bucks, but we could sell it for 4,000, you know, because that's what people are willing to pay for it. That's how much value people put on it. The same thing is true for meaning and, and, and purpose and joy. My life has whatever meaning or purpose I attribute it, attribute to it. Um, I, the very idea that there was somebody guiding this to tell me what my life's value is, that is something we would reject in every other circumstance. If the government told you what your job was going to be or that, you know, you and your family, like the caste system in India is, is almost a top down pronouncement of you are the upper class, you are the lower class and you are the middle or middle class and you are the untouchables. This is something that people in India, for example, have accepted um, it's become kind of the de facto standard and yet everybody else would reject it. So, and yet we know that this, or we, we, we believe that this is a fiction that there really aren't, you know, not a class of people that is untouchable. We, we look at that, we find it repugnant. If there's no God, nothing has changed about what I value, about what I cherish, about who I love. Um, nothing has fundamentally changed about my meaning in life unless we look at the, your religion says, this is your purpose to serve God, to love God, whatever that can change. If that's all you lose and that's what people are afraid of, people are like, ah, if there's no God, then my life doesn't have a purpose. No. If there's no God, it means your purpose hasn't been dictated and you are now the captain of your own ship. It's not that the ship has no captain. It's not that the plane has no pilot. You are now the one in charge to the extent and limits that you can be. I mean, I, I can't, I can't control whether or not I get, you know, cancer. I can't control whether or not lightning strikes me, but I, I make decisions and I live my life and I can control, you know, Hey, which car do I buy? Which charity do I support? Uh, how am I going to spend my free time? Am I going to spend it? You know, there was a guy at the debate who asked a question and I, I got after him a little bit, but I was trying to, to have fun with it. And we spoke after and I made sure that, you know, he wanted to make sure I wasn't offended and I wanted to make sure he wasn't offended because he said, you know, why do you do this? If, if you're convinced that there's no God, why aren't you just out living it up, having fun? And I said, basically what you're asking is why won't you atheists shut up? Mm-hmm. I can tell you why I do this. I do this first of all, because I enjoy it because I actually like thinking about the topics. Um, I like engaging with people. Uh, I also do it because I care about what's true and what's not true. Um, I do it because I care about what kind of world I live in. And as long as all of you believe something that I think is wrong, I think there's an obligation for me to try to show why I think it's wrong because one of two things will happen. Either I'll convince you and now we'll we'll both stop being wrong or you will convince me and I will stop being wrong because what you believe matters and it dictates what kind of world you're going to be living in. And I I may not think you guys are are the uh, the opposition, um, with regard to the religious idea and the, and the notion about a God, but we find ourselves in opposition constantly because we have to vote. We have to make decisions about what kind of world we're going to live in. That's why I do this. That's what I care. I I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, I, I think that as we see more and more people leave religion, 
you know, I've heard people express, religious people say, oh my gosh, the church is dying, isn't that terrible? And I'm sitting here going, no, it's it's not terrible. Um, because as we have less religious uh, dogma that isn't demonstrably true, we have more freedoms, and we also have, a, along with the freedoms to act, we have more freedom in how we assess those actions. My determination of what is good or evil isn't being dictated to me by some traditional dogma. It's based on an evaluation of the consequences of actions. It is based on what is in the best interest of humanity going forward. It is, wouldn't we like to do our best to create the best world for all of us? And I know that the utopian idea isn't necessarily possible. You have to balance, you know, rights and freedoms and put limitations on things and because my right to swing my fist ends at your nose type thing, or shortly before your nose, I, I guess. Um, I, I understand and I empathize with the fears that religious people have about finding out that they're wrong. But the nice thing about finding out that you're wrong is that you don't have to keep being wrong. I understand and empathize with religious people who are fearful that they will lose uh, this promise of a wonderful afterlife. But if it's not true and you are making decisions about your, your, after, your life based on the afterlife that's not true, isn't it better to know that? We, when we deal with you know, life and death situations and death and dying, you know, religions have monopolized the conversation such that they've built up false expectations. Wouldn't the world be better if we recognize that until we do something to fix it or change it, human beings are going to die? You may or may not get to see them in some afterlife. You don't have any reason to think that's the case. So let's treat people better now. Let's try to build a world that's better for us, for the people who come after us. Oh, well, well, if there's no afterlife, why would you care about the people that come after you? Well, first of all, I'm related to some of them, and I care about them, and they're going to be related to people that they care about. Isn't that enough? Why, why do we have to paint uh, some... Uh, supernatural component on top of it. Why can't we just say life is its own reward? Getting to go around and en engage and enjoy and learn and share and try not to screw things up for everybody else as a way of paying it back for the people who didn't screw it up too much for us. Shouldn't we be better? Can't we keep getting better? And if, we, if, if there's any hope of us continuing to improve who we are and the, the type of society that we can build, I don't see that that is going to be derived from ancient books of wisdom from people who weren't particularly wise about the kind of world we live in now. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Sure, I loved it. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.